This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast about the ancient history of the Four Corners and why it matters today. We are your two hosts. I'm Callie Carswell. And I'm Kayla Eiler. And here's what's in store this season. We've got stories about people, places, public lands, science, culture, and ethics, agriculture, and tourism. And, well, we should just listen, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Today we're going to talk about a tourism boom in an obscure corner of southeast Utah. At least, it was obscure. All right, here we go. The first few days I was here, I felt like my eyes were sore from so much beauty. I was, just my eyes were sore. This is Betty Gale. Betty Gale Shively, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I ran into her in a fork of Butler Wash in southeastern Utah. She was on her way up to Ballroom Cave. It's an archaeological site in an alcove in the Bears Ears National Monument. You may have heard of Bears Ears. The president created two new national monuments. Bears Ears. Bears Ears. Bears Ears. Here's the basic rundown on Bears Ears. President Barack Obama designated this 1.35 million acre national monument at the end of his presidency. Five tribes with ancestral connections to the area pushed for the monument. And the idea was to bring extra recognition and resources to this vast cultural landscape, which is just littered with archaeological sites. The estimate is somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 sites. That was Shauna Diedrichs. She's an archaeologist and was guiding Betty Gale's hike. So back to the monument, the designation was controversial. County officials from the areas that border the monument opposed it. So did the entire Utah congressional delegation. And in the first year of his presidency, Donald Trump answered their call to undo Obama's actions. He drastically reduced the size of the monument, and it generated even more headlines. Bears ears, bears ears, bears ears. It brought tons of attention to this remote corner of Utah, and it brought tourists people like Betty Gale Shively. I just was interested in seeing the land before maybe it was changed in some way, but I know now that there are many different perspectives because with monument status comes more tourism. And tourism has impacts on archeological sites, much more significant ones than you might expect. Tourism to southeastern Utah was on the rise even before the monument controversy. And the increase in visitation is taking a toll on places like Ballroom Cave. We're going to get a look at those impacts in this episode, and we're going to learn how to leave a lighter footprint. To that end, I went to Ballroom Cave recently, too. Kind of looks like this way. With this guy. Okay, I'm Jason Chipka. Jason is an archaeologist, and he's working with the federal agency that manages these lands to mitigate the impacts from well-meaning but a bit too curious visitors. So I tagged along with him while he was doing some field work, and it turned into kind of a tour of unintentional destruction at Ballroom Cave. This is a sad, this is like the... We're up in Ballroom Cave now on the south side of the alcove it sits in. I know a lot of people come and hike in southeast Utah and it is pretty amazing to see what's here. But when you're looking at it through the archaeologist eyes and understanding what has been impacted, it's kind of sad. We're looking down at the remains of a kiva, and how little of it remains is what provoked this reaction. There's photos even from the 70s that had maybe twice as much of the kiva was there. And now... The whole downslope side has fallen away. 
It's people climbing on the kiva, on the walls, and even just walking right alongside the base of the walls that's the problem, Jason says. It was abandoned and in ruin for, say, 800 years, but it's really the last 50 years that the deterioration has taken a, a massive acceleration. To understand why visitation is having such an impact here, you need to understand a couple things about the landscape and how it's managed. From the highway, we hiked only about a mile to reach Ballroom Cave. It's easy to get to, and it's impressive. It's an alcove filled with remnant walls of ancient buildings, not unlike some of the cliff dwellings you'll see in Mesa Verde National Park. Uh, Anywhere else in the world, this would be an amazing, one-of-a-kind, perhaps, site. For visitors, there is one really noticeable difference between visiting a park like Mesa Verde and the Bears Ears area, though. Most of the Bears Ears lands are managed by a federal agency called the Bureau of Land Management. That's BLM for short. The BLM manages its lands for all sorts of different uses. Hiking and mountain biking, oil and gas production, cattle grazing. And there are a lot less restrictions on what you can do on BLM land than what you can do in a national park. That means you can walk straight up to sites like Ballroom Cave. There are no rangers around, no one to stop you from entering rooms or hopping over walls. There are no permanent signs, no permanent guardrails. That is what is drawing people to the area. We haven't encountered a single person as we've been hiking in here. Our boots haven't touched concrete. That's part of what makes visiting this place so incredible. And it's part of what makes it vulnerable, especially as visitor numbers increase. Hey, uh, can we pause here for just a little bit more backstory? Sure, what's up? Besides the monument, what else is behind the tourism boom in this part of Utah? Yeah, I asked Jason that. First, one caveat. The general sense of people who know the area is that the monument has boosted tourism. But it's hard to tell exactly how much. The BLM doesn't have data on it yet. And tourism in this part of Utah was on the rise even before the monument. Jason said it was a few things. The internet is a big one. A lot of the sites in this area haven't even been officially surveyed by archeologists. That doesn't mean people don't know they exist, but maybe 30 years ago, you'd probably only have heard about them through word of mouth. Most of them really weren't on the map, literally or metaphorically. The internet has changed that though. Word spreads fast and far online. Now everybody's a guidebook author. So they'd post blogs of, Here's a really neat ruin to go hike to. Drive 3.2 miles to this two-track, turn left for 5.2, and they give you a step-by-step guide of how to hike there. And then another thing. Oh, it's been going on 20 years, but really the last 10 years. Is GPS. They'll get uh, coordinates, and they'll have the GPS, and they feel very safe. You can even buy uh, hiking routes. Okay, so back to Ballroom Cave. Let's get my stuff out. Jason is getting to work. Today, he's photographing all of the structures that are still standing in Ballroom Cave. He and his team will compare the photos to an archaeological map made of the site in 2007 to see how visitors might be changing it. They'll come back to the site and make detailed notes about unstable walls or trails that might be causing erosion and exposing artifacts. And then they'll go to the BLM with proposals for mitigating the impacts they document. I'm just gonna be taking a series of photos, so I'm just gonna start at this end of the site. Okay, let's see here. When you do this kind of work, you learn a few things about how visitors enjoy the uncontrolled access they get to the archeology span here. 
The first thing, when people see a room, they want to enter it. If we're looking into this cliff-dwelling room, the first thing you notice is there's a large gap in this wall here. The room we're looking at now is a square kiva. The original entry would have been through a hatch in the roof. The kiva no longer has a roof, but it does have a gap in the southern wall, a big one. It basically looks like a door. The southern wall of the structure has been either eroded because of foot traffic or somebody had pushed some rocks over initially to be able to get into the structure. And again, at the base of the wall, the um, masonry has been kicked out and has eroded out. And so that void at the wall base is causing the rest of the masonry to, masonry to sag. And so this is really a matter of time before that entire piece of the um, architecture collapses into the structure. Now, it is surprising that simply walking into a room could have such an impact. It could just be one inadvertent knock with someone's shoulder if they're trying to duck under that beam. But it survived all this time without lots of people climbing on it. And it's built on a foundation of sand. And then there's the issue of shoes. I'm wearing Vibram sole boots myself right now, but the Vibram sole is, is the enemy of archaeological sites. Wait, what? Vibram? I thought maybe he'd say looters are the enemy, but hiking boots? Well, yeah, looters are also the enemy. Looters steal artifacts like pots from sites, often to sell them on the black market. They've scavenged Ballroom Cave, too, actually. So what's up with Vibram? Well, it's not just Vibram, but any lug-soled boot with aggressive treads. Those treads are great for gripping rocks and trails. Conversely, if you're on really sandy soil, that, that lug-soled boot acts like a mini excavator, and every footstep you take really churns up the sediment. The first grippy boot that walks into the room and pulls a little sand back from the base of a wall, maybe not such a big deal. But the 50th, 100th, 300th, 600th, 1,000th, all those bits of sand start to add up. And then in the wall we're looking at, straight in front of us, there's a big hole forming. It's not that people can't come visit the site. It's just they can't really be walking along the wall bases and have to stay back. It's Jason's job to figure out how to encourage this behavior. His team is likely to suggest reclaiming trails that lead into rooms and rerouting them so they skirt ruins instead. They may also do things like stabilize walls with mortars that mimic those used prehistorically. But protecting these sites is on you, too. It's on you to visit the site, as Jason says, with respect. You don't want to disrupt what's there. You don't want to do any damage. These are places that are still important to descendant communities. So you would approach it the same way you'd approach uh, a cemetery or a church or grandma's house. There are certain behaviors that are really not appropriate for the setting. So here's a list of things you can do or not do when you visit places like Ballroom Cave. This list is provided courtesy of the BLM. It's located in an ammo can chained to a rock in the alcove. And I had Jason talk me through it. So don't pee in the parlor. Yeah, and that should be self-explanatory, but that happens more often than not. Jason actually experienced this firsthand, camping near an alcove in Grand Gulch. People had been using it as the latrine, and every alcove has some amount of prehistoric occupation in it. I don't know if they wanted privacy or what they wanted, but if you leave toilet paper in the desert, it is going to be there. There are basket fragments here from 500 AD, so alcoves are the worst place to, to do any of that. 
Okay, don't eat in the living room. Um, so all of these archaeological sites are subject to different forms of disturbance. Any sort of food particles that are left attract rodents, it attracts insects, and those all can potentially do damage to the archaeological site. Okay, no slumber parties. Yeah, and the, the no slumber parties, these aren't places that descended communities are comfortable with people sleeping in, camping in, but it's also an issue of accelerated use, is if everybody's camping in the alcove, it's going to end up looking like campsites. The, the chance of inadvertent damage increases as you're stumbling around in the middle of the night looking for that P-spot. Okay, this one we've already talked about. Keep your feet off the furniture and the walls. Keep your feet off the walls. Um, sign the register, not the rocks. Not signing the rocks is leaving graffiti. It seems pretty straightforward, but there's incidents of graffiti fairly regularly. You are defacing um, the archaeological site, but you're also diminishing the experience for the next person. If the experience is walking up to a site and having that feeling of what it was like when it was abandoned in the 12th or 13th century, and you see Bob from Tulsa scratched into the rock face, it suddenly ruins that whole experience. Okay, don't take the knickknacks. Right, don't take the knickknacks. Part of the experience of coming to a place like Southeast Utah is seeing sites in near pristine condition, seeing all of the artifacts that are around the site. The other part of the don't take the knickknacks message is those knickknacks are what archaeologists call data points. And some of the most impressive discoveries have been made off of the least impressive types of things. For example, in Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, the whole connection of cacao coming from northern Mexico and Central America comes from um, ceramic vessels that were tested for that protein residue. And so are some of those sherds, those ceramic pieces that are being removed, what data do they hold? Uh, okay, last one, by invitation only. Ooh, that one's sort of abstract. Oh, exactly. Use trails in and around the Pueblos. There are areas that are chained off or trails have been blocked very subtly with just simply um, brush and rock have been placed across them. And the reason for that is there's fragile remains uh, behind them. And so staying on the trail is important. That was a fun list. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty good. Ultimately, Jason says, it just comes back to the issue of respect. We should all approach these places with a certain sense of reverence. It's beyond treading lightly. It's something that's a deeper ethic. Where you are is part of a cultural landscape with deep roots. In addition to not leaving your candy bar wrappers, you should also try to minimize even the footprints you're leaving. You just definitely want to leave the, the place as it was. The, the real path to preservation is going to be more education for visitors. And on that note, one final pro tip. What should have been on the BLM list along with don't pee in the ruins is don't bring your dog into the ruin. Whether they're digging or picking up sticks, those aren't sticks, those are thousand-year-old roof beams. And the dog will probably pee in the ruins. 
thanks to Jason Chipka of Woods Canyon Archaeological Consultants and to Shauna Diedrichs of the Crow Canyon Archaeological Center and to Betty Gail Shively visiting from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And thanks for listening. You can learn more about the connections that Pueblo peoples of today maintain with sites long after their ancestors migrated away from them in our episode called What's an Anasazi? It covers the importance of archaeological terminology. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and do us a favor and leave us a review. For more information, visit mesaverdevoices.org. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It's produced in partnership with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Museum Association, with additional support from the Ballantine Family Fund, Aramark, and Concept 360. 